Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Other Side Podcast mission is to discuss important cultural and social issues relating to race, culture, gender, and equality. Welcome. Thanks again for joining us for another episode of The Other Side Podcast. I'm Scott Kirk, and in partnership with the Columbus Dispatch Editorial Board, The Other Side is featuring a series of special podcast episodes called In Black and White. The series is devoted to discussing racism and its meaning. These episodes were run in conjunction with op-ed columns appearing in the newspaper and on Dispatch.com. Dr. Terrence Dean and I will be interviewing scholars in relevant fields to try to answer some of the most important questions related to racism. And joining us today is Marcellus Braxton, who is an assistant dean of students at Capital University Law School. Marcellus has a column that ran in the dispatch titled Columbus versus DC Policing, addressing the societal perception of black dangerousness. Marcellus, thanks for joining us today. We really appreciate having you here. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. And, you know, I really am excited about this op-ed piece because I love the way you juxtapose the shooting deaths that happened here in Columbus of Casey Goodson, as well as um, Andre Hill, with that of the protests that happened most recently in Washington, D.C. But I love the way you illustrated how Black is seen autonomously with dangerousness and white with innocence. So I want you to please unpack that for us, but also more, more so, what inspired you? Was was it because seeing those two stories happening simultaneously or just, you know, they're happening in, in, in real time? Or what other implications um, were, were at the helm of you coming to say, you know what, I get to get to some dispatch immediately? Yeah, I think that um, since, especially since May or June, um, a lot of people have been wanting to think about race and they want to think about policing and they want to think about how all these things go together. And I've just talked to people and um, I was having conversations with students and they were making this connection between what was happening here in Columbus and what was happening at the Capitol. But I noticed that they were making the connection, but they were trying to figure out exactly what the connection was. And so oftentimes I think we use very general words. We say something is white privilege, but we don't really articulate exactly what that looks like. And so what I wanted to do is just say, hey, we're right to compare those things. We're right to compare what's happening in Capitol versus what's happening in Columbus, but we need to be able to be specific and call exactly what it is. And so We've been also combined with that. We're also talking about policing. We're talking about what should we do, reform, defund. We're using all these words and we don't know what they mean. And so I want to say there's a connection with all of this. Policing, what's happening in Columbus, what's happening in D.C. And it's all rooted in society's perception of black people, even young black people. Because let's add something onto it. You know, you have a school to prison pipeline. We're talking about what's happening through K through 12. And we're saying, why do all these things connect? And so I wrote this column just because I wanted to show it's all related. The one thing we have, have to understand is all these things we're talking about, all these privileges we're talking about, they're all related. And it has to do with our perception of blackness, which is what is happening. So everything we see in society is rooted in that, this perception of dangerousness that we put for black people and not just black men. 
I think it's really important. I didn't get to talk about it as much in the column, but we also have a societal perception of the dangerousness of black women and black girls as well. So oftentimes, it's not even just that white people are often viewed as more innocent, it's that white people often get the benefit of the doubt. And what that means even more so is that we see the humanity of white people in a way that we don't see the humanity of black people. So oftentimes when someone who is racialized white will do something wrong, we'll say they did something wrong, but they're also a human. And, and that seems really basic because we're all humans. But oftentimes when a black person does something wrong or even more importantly is perceived to do something wrong, we don't really see their humanity. We think about, oh, they're dangerous. Oh, we have to stop them. Oh, we have to do these things. But we don't see that them as flawed human beings in the way that we do those who are racialized as white. So that's kind of why I wanted to write about this, because I think we have to have a bigger conversation. I'm not saying we shouldn't talk about the police. We're not, we shouldn't talk about what's happening in D.C., but all of it is rooted in our perception of blackness. And that's what we have to address overall if we're going to even solve any of these problems. Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. You're absolutely right. I, I love the fact that, that you make these stark analysis, but also these stark distinctions between, you know, um, black persons being um, seen as dangerous. Where do you think that comes from? Because I think you were real, you were you give us some statistical data within your on your essay. But I wonder if you can tell the audience, like, why is it that blackness is perceived as dangerous or as a threat, even when they are not doing anything? So we can give examples. We can talk about like the young men in New York City with his dad and the, um, the, the white woman who attacks him because she feels that he had her cell phone. Or when the um, white, the black man is in Central Park walking and the white woman refuses to put her dog and says, I'm going to call the police and say a black man is threatening me. Like we've already have these perceptions and elements of, of danger with associated with blackness. Can you unpack that for us? Yeah, and so I think we're going to have to go back hundreds of years, actually, in my opinion. So oftentimes we think about the origin of race, how did race come to be? And race is a construct, meaning it's made up, but it's still super important. And so we think about that. How do you differentiate someone who is white and someone who is black? Oftentimes you have to create some separation between the two and then add something on the enslavement of people. So think about our treatment of indigenous people in this country and also our treatment of black people in this country. How can you justify treating someone poorly? You can either say, hey, they are less than we are. They're not human. Or you can say they're dangerous. So you can look back at documents and go back hundreds of years and you can talk about societies wanting this perception of dangerousness that happens. So oftentimes you can look at documents where there are white men saying, hey, we have to do this to indigenous populations or black populations because they're dangerous and they can harm white women. And so you look back in the 16, 17, 1800s and you see that kind of stuff and then you see it happen. And we had nothing that was going to change it. The one thing we have to understand is that these perceptions started hundreds of years ago but they still continue to this day. So this dangerous comes along. And so we think about enslavement, we think about slave rebellions, et cetera. So they say, oh, there's dangerous that comes there. And then when we talk about, oh, okay, well now, I would say um, there's no slavery, but that's not, that's a simplification of it. But now it's saying, okay, what are these black people going to do? They're dangerous, et cetera. And then even talking about the history of policing that happens, oftentimes they say, okay, well, 
we need to, <laughs> we have in the South, they say like, oh, well, we have to keep these black people in line. And in the North, they say we have to keep these black people in line. And so all these things happen. And people say, well, this is a long time ago. But things that happened a long time ago still influence what we think today because things pass down and pass down and pass down. So now we're in 2021 and we're still seeing it where we just perceive people as dangerous as well. I think these perceptions that we see that we just think, oh, well, I mean, I mentioned in the article that we see black people and we see them as big people. Like, I mean, I just think of Tamir Rice a lot. This 12, the 12 year old in, in this state, this perception that influences it, a 12 year old boy. We know that society views is different. So a 12-year-old boy might be looked at as 15 or 16 and big as opposed to a small little boy who doesn't pose this danger. So these are the things that are influencing and going back hundreds of years. I just wanted to ask, what do you think, do you think with with what happened on January 6th and the the riots at the U.S. Capitol um, and, and these images we see of white men and women destroying uh, federal property, being violent, in essence, trying to overthrow the government. Do you think that that will change this perception that it's it's primarily black folks and black protesters and Black Lives Matter and, and all, all of the sort of the usual um, targets for for inciting violence or, 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 or inciting white fear. Do you think that that dynamic will change now that it's, it's been so, because I found that that's what struck me watching those images. And I, I think it's, you know, it's, it's been widely reported that a lot of um, the black community the, the first thing that a lot of black folks thought was that we could never get away with that. And so now that that that's out there and it's no longer something that can just sort of be used to to beat the black community over the head. Do you think that that narrative will change or is it still going to be sort of this thing where, as you said before, white innocence is still projected, whereas black violence is um, well, let, let me let me rephrase that white violence is diminished and black violence is accentuated. You know, I don't want to sound pessimistic, but I don't think it'll necessarily change the perception. And the reason why I think that is because I think the perception was created because they wanted to create this distinction between black folks and indigenous folks, et cetera, people of color versus white people. So, and what I mean by that is think about what we talk about when you're in history class. I always tell people, think back to what you learned when you were in sixth and seventh grade. They often talk about things like the Boston Tea Party, right? Which, you know, that was protest. They say like, oh, but that protest is characterized as they were patriots. Right. And, yeah. and then we talk about the Revolutionary War, how the Revolutionary War started. So these patriots decided they were going to fight back. And they, there's often a story told before the Revolutionary War where they said they were encountering British soldiers and they were throwing rocks at them and they were standing up to them and they were doing all this work. And so the reason why the majority of them were white, notably there was Crispus Attucks, who was uh, who was a black man, but the majority of the people there were white. So the perception was different. And so we are a country that is, we talk about protests all the time. And if you actually look back, we have a history filled with protests and violent protests and violent rioting. Rioting that happens in this country where there was just constant violence, constant death, et cetera, that were perpetuated by those who are racialized white. And only when these riots or when these protests start being from people of color do we perceive them different. So I often think about Standing Rock for Indigenous folks, and I think about all of that protest. I think the pro, I think 
what's happening here is that the perception of black dangerousness and dangerous of people of color is really informing that. And I don't think it's going to change because that is a way to be able to try to tell people, hey, look at this distinction. They're different. They're causing violence. So I don't see it changing right away. My hope would be that it changed, but I think it's really for some folks who have an agenda, they want to make it this way. They want to say when there are white protests, they are patriots. And when it's black, indigenous and other people of color, they are rabble rousers. They are causing issues. They are doing bad things. So I hope it changes, but I just don't see it changing at this moment. Gotcha. I love that you brought up those terms, patriot and American, because those were terms we kept hearing persistently as the white protesters and rioters, let's call them what they were, they were really rioters, who stormed the Capitol. Because if you listen to them, they kept saying, where's my patriotic duty? You know, I'm an American. And when you hear the language of Black Lives Matter, it's totally different. It's more like, I'm a human. See me as someone who's equal, um, who has access. So the languaging is pretty significantly different. But also how we and the media particularly, you know, I guess, make, make use of that language. Um, and I think it plays a big part of what you're getting at when you keep talking about uh, relating to blackness as dangerous. And in your article, you talk about young black men, even when they are seen doing the same types of things that young white men are doing, they are seen not as young black boys, but as adult black boys. And there's a term that we use in the academy called adultification, meaning that we adultify or make um, what, uh, in the case of Tamir Rice, he was no longer seen as a, the 12 innocent year old little boy that he was, but became an adult because he was playing with a toy gun. I think there are terms like thugification, because immediately when we see a group of black young men, all of a sudden they're a group of thugs, um, but we don't see a group of white young men together. We don't think of those terms as thugs. Could you go more into that? Like, what is this need or what is this desire to adultify young young black persons, like the young black girls and young black boys that you really get at in your essay. Yeah, absolutely. And um, before I, I um, talk about that, I, I'd be remiss in um, not mentioning since we, you know, Dr. King's day just passed is talking about black dangerous even extends beyond even perceived violence too, because he was once called the most dangerous man, the most dangerous black man in America and a person who is notably known for peace by merely wanting to protest. He was the most dangerous one. So even that perception of dangerous even applies to people who are notably peaceful. And yeah, I, I really appreciate you bringing that up because I think it's something that's really important. And I think it comes to when we talk about punishment. I think there's a level of control, there's a level of paternalism that happens by essentially when they say, oh, black boys, black girls, you need to stay in your place. You need to be respectable. And so I always think about respectability politics when we think about this as well. We say, oh, if you're black, you need to adhere to this standard. You need to assimilate. And if you don't do that, now you are dangerous. Dangerous. If you want to be who you are, you're dangerous as well. And I think people often think of punishment in very different ways. So when it comes to black boys and black girls, it thinks, oh, we want to be punitive. We want to teach them a lesson. We want to teach them a lesson by being harsh on them. When it comes to white boys and girls, we say, we want to teach them a lesson that is not going to ruin in their lives. Because this narrative often comes up. We don't often say this for a 13-year-old black boy who is, you know, charged, or a 14-year-old black boy or 15 or 16 who's charged as an adult who's in prison for 30, put in prison for 30 years for something. We don't say, oh, this might ruin their lives. But oftentimes for 
uh, white boys and white girls, they're often viewed as, oh, this is just a blip on what's going to happen in their lives as well. And so I know Brian Stevenson often talks about how we shouldn't judge someone for the worst thing they've ever done. And but for black boys and black girls, we we will say you've done something. So we're going to throw you away for the rest of your life. For white boys and white girls, we often don't. We say we're not going to judge you based on that. So um, I often think of the um, he's he wasn't a boy, but the Stanford, I believe the Stanford swimmer who he did not even go to prison. So he was convicted of sexual assault, did not even go to prison for, I don't even know if it was more than a year. I mean, because people and the, the judge even said, oh, we don't want to ruin your life. And so I think it just goes back to this notion of, we talk about policing a lot. And we often talk about policing from the construct of, oh, we have the police officers. But what happens is we like to police black boys and black girls from the time they're born. And so we have this societal policing that ends up happening to them. And we say, like, oh, if you step outside these boundaries, that's what's going to happen. So I think that's what we do. And we become afraid of them, too. We become afraid of them. And we teach society, be afraid of them. Because you mentioned the media. When all you're putting on TV is look at this black boy and look at this black girl and look at the, the trouble they're causing, they're not redeemable in any way. So, of course, you have we have a segregated country in a lot of ways. So if what you're getting is from media and TV, et cetera, where all you're seeing is, oh, this black kid is dangerous, then that's what you're going to put when it manifests in your actual life. Now, this 12 year old, 13 year old boy who's in school, who is acting in a way that you don't think he should act. Now we're going to say we need to punish him. We need to lock that person away. And that's what ends up happening. So I think that's often what we see in this country. So do you have any recommendations for, could you bring up the Community Review Board um, in your essay too, in regards to the way we look at um, how police will be charged or how they will be, the community will be involved in the process. Is there a type, is there training that could be considered or is that something that you want to offer? Um, when we say, you know, there people, like you said, we're throwing out the terms, defund the police what that actually means, if we're defunding the police, could those funds or more money or some type of training be given toward the re-education of police officers when encountering persons of color so that they're not seen as dangerous or as a threat and how to de-escalate as opposed to um, immediately think of, you know, I need to put out my gun and shoot or get my taser. Yeah, well, I think we have to have a really honest conversation about what policing does in this country and in our local community. Because you're right, people talk about reform and they talk about the fund and they say, what can we actually do? And the, th- the first thing I think we have to do is we have to take away the potential for violence. And oftentimes, if you if you have people who are walking into a situation that have guns or something that can harm people, it increases the chance of their being harmed. We just know that, whether it's a small percentage or a large percentage. And so I think if you walk into a situation and you have the potential for violence, violence could potentially occur, especially with this perception. So we have to figure out a way to say, is it necessary? Because in other countries, if you notice, police often don't carry around guns. Having guns is something that is fairly unique. So I think we have to think about that as well. And there is some training, but I don't think it's necessarily implicit bias training, for instance. That's the big thing that goes around. We say, oh, well, people have to look in their implicit biases. But we've seen that that doesn't necessarily work because oftentimes implicit bias have you looking into the past. And it says, oh, I carried some bias with me. But what we're trying to do is get people to change their behavior. And so the number one way to get people to change their behavior is often not putting people in the situation where they have to drive that behavior. So there are so many things that we call the police for that we don't need to. 
We don't need to call the police for mental health issues. We don't really need to call police for issues of, you know, most drugs. There are very few reasons why we even need to get police involved. Because we often say police are here for your safety, but they're often not here to keep you safe in that way. Oftentimes they escalate a situation. So I think the thing we have to think about is who can we put into place that's not going to escalate this thing? Who do we get into place that's actually going to de-escalate? And I don't think that's a, I don't think we should be training police officers to do that. We have people who already know how to do that. We have so we have social workers, we have counselors, we have psychologists, we have people who actually have this understanding. I'm not saying police should not be trained at all in this, but this shouldn't be something that they're necessarily addressing at all. I think health professionals need to do this. And that's really what the defunding looks like. Because oftentimes we're looking and we're saying, oh, well, we need to just put more money into policing. But why when you already have people who can do this? And I think what's happening is it's escalating the situation by walking into the situation. So if there's a police officer, everybody, they're going to say, OK, I'm going to be on edge. You're already going to be on edge. You're already going to be afraid. And what we have to do, the training we have to do is getting people to realize that, getting police to realize that. Look at that. We have to look at the history of what policing is in this country so that what we understand that someone is going to be afraid when they see you. So automatically that is going to change the perception. That's going to change everything that happens in that situation. If you walk in and someone's afraid of you, they're going to be afraid. They're going to be afraid to act. They're not going to trust you, et cetera. So, but this perception is not going to change right away because if you give training to police about perception, what are we doing for society? Society holds this. The only difference is that police often have guns and other people don't. So what they can do is going to change. And I think we, it's going to be a slow moving process. But I think right now what we have to do is we have to put policies in place that are going to prevent the harm. And then what we need are we need people who are going to review it. that are not institutionally involved with the police. So you think about training, but you also need to have that adequate review about are we doing the right thing? Because right now we say we have training in place, but then we have police who often review police. And so you're going to have a bias right there. So if you really want to institute change, you really want to institute training, what you need to do is have third parties who are going to say, we need to review your actions. We need to review what you're doing and what you're doing is not correct. Here's what you should have done in the situation. And, and I want those reviews to be, oh, you did something small that's wrong. Not you harmed someone, not you shot someone. It's you might have reacted a different way. That is something we can work with. But what we can't work with is people dying, people being harmed in the sake of grow, in the sake of, oh, trying to change. Because reform is just going to result in more people dying, and we have to change that. Really great. You know, I think when you brought up something that you were talking, it made me think of Newark, New Jersey, and the mayor there. Why am I drawing a blank on his name right now? But it will come to me. But in Newark, um, actually, in Newark, New Jersey, they had zero police shootings happening, um, which is a primarily African-American community. But they had zero police shootings of African-Americans because they have been trained to de-escalate problems as to escalate the problems. So we want to commend the mayor there. Uh, Amir Baraka is his name. I knew it would come to me. Um, so I wonder if we can take some of those cues, um, the things that you're talking about. But I, and I want to um, ask you, and, and I want you to probably walk us through it, like just probably provide an example implicit biases because even though we're talking about everything you're saying you know about these dangerousness of blackness and how we can do the training not just the police but society as a whole i think we have to recognize our own implicit biases that we have and i think sometimes um those who have who are um of, of whiteness tend to not recognize the implicit biases that they have that they can literally just wake up and just go about their day without thinking about being stopped by the police or 
they can walk into a bank and say, well, you know, I would like to get a bank loan. Some of the, you know, and I'm saying that it, it happens all the time. But race never comes up as a factor for them as they move throughout their day, as how we operate and operate in our worlds, acknowledging how race is always at play. Can you talk about some of those implicit biases? Yeah, for sure. And the one thing I want to say is um, you mentioned the mayor of Newark, and I think it's really important to say that is the minimum expectation to not kill other people. <laughs> so like, that's really important. I mean, I'm not. Yeah. And we should. Comm- I mean, we definitely need to be able to commend folks for not doing that. But that should be the minimum. That should be the expectation. That should be we should we we don't need to kill other people. I want people to understand that from my piece. I'm not suggesting, oh, the response should be violent, more violence against those who are racialized white. What I'm saying is, no, we shouldn't be having this violence at all. And I think it's really important that you can hold people accountable without harming them or giving them this kind of punitive punishment that needs to happen. And so, but that's another philosophical topic for another day, for sure. And so I think the, the best illustration I can think of um, for thinking about implicit bias is, um, well, the example I always go back to when I teach students, I always say, let's think about the Charleston church shooting with Dylan Roof. Dylan Roof is still alive today. And oftentimes I say um, that is the perfect illustration of bias here because they see they saw the humanity in Dylan Roof, a person who murdered people who admittedly murdered, there was no doubt about it, but he was still seen as less threatening. And so, but they still saw him as human. So there's a story that came out that said like, oh, they took him to Burger King because they still thought this is a human who is deserving of, you know, food and water and to be treated humanely. And I think that's super important. And that's always an example I go about these biases. We often see that people go and arrest murderers that are white or people who shot people or people who have guns right on them. And so, and I think we always have to think about those biases, too. You can't possibly, like, you can look at Tamir Rice and you look at Dylan Roof. Tamir Rice had a toy gun and a 12-year-old boy. Dylan Roof was an adult who murdered people, who we knew about it, who was definitely a threat. And we look at those biases that happen. And I think we have to make those one-to-one comparisons and say, even going back to the Capitol, if you can walk in there and see people who are literally breaking the law, who are rioting, who are causing destruction— and you didn't have to, you didn't kill them, then why are you killing anyone? Those are the biases we have to do. And we have to ask these questions. We need to have active questions. We need to say, what is the difference here? And why are you not doing that? It was smart not to necessarily kill anyone. You, you're not trying to advocate for that. But those are the things we have to examine. And I think when we're thinking about biases, we often tell people, oh, just reflect about it. But no, we need people to actively talk about why why they are killing someone, why they might be shooting someone, why they would think about shooting someone as opposed to doing that. And I think there's something about humanizing someone. So even if you look at articles, you see people are talking about, oh, well, let's think about the people who stormed the Capitol. Let's think about what they were going through. Let's think about their mental health, all these things. We see article after article after article. And when we're thinking about biases, where are those articles about all the black men and women we put in prison? Where are those articles about what they've gone through as children, the trauma they face by being black, by their experiences, by their family, by the way the world treats them? And so what I think we have to do is not only think about our biases, but think about how can we humanize every single person who we see? Because if you're if a police officer, your job is to, in theory, protect the community. And so if you're not looking to humanize every single person who's in your community, whether they've done something really wrong or whether they've done nothing wrong at all, then you're not really able to do your job. So I think going along with bias, it has to be this humanization that happens for everyone. And to know that if you choose to harm someone, you're choosing to harm a human being 
who is something inherently in themselves, but also they have a family. They might have kids. They have a mother. They might have a father. They have people who care about them and they care about other people. And whenever they go to pull that gun, they have to be able to think about that. So I think that's really important. Marcellus, I wanted to ask you quickly, do you think that this fear of black bodies is a consequence of lack of knowledge or experience, or is it more a necessary construct to keep in place, you know, the white power structure. I because I often wonder. I mean, it's not like there aren't positive examples of of, of black folks, you know, ev- that we see every day. The majority of black folks, they get up, they go to work, they take care of their kids, you know, they go to the grocery store, they don't have criminal records, and I mean, people see that every day. So. I think I often wonder, is it a is a choice for some in white society to focus on on those negatives um, to re um, to reinforce that fear? Because ultimately, if you're going to have you can't have a, a system of, of white supremacy um, without mechanisms to reinforce those beliefs or hold up that structure. And I believe part of that is this black fear. But I'm just curious, what do you think? Do you think it is more just an innate fear or is it just, is it by choice, I guess? So I definitely think in some cases there might be lack of information. So um, I never want to discount that there are people in this world who might not have experiences with folks and all they do is they learn things they learn things based on stereotypes, but I think it is TV, the news, exactly, right, music, yeah. whatever it is, right, exactly, yeah. And so I think my answer will be a little nuanced in that I think it's a choice, but for some people it's not an active choice; it's a subconscious choice, and that makes it even more dangerous. And I'll explain exactly what I mean by that. Is I think we can't discount the impact of white supremacy. And oftentimes people don't want to use that word because they immediately start thinking the KKK or neo-Nazis. But really they have to think about it is that white supremacy is just this belief that white people are superior and should dominate society. And oftentimes it manifests itself in these non-like violent ways that we're thinking about. It's just this idea that like, oh, white people are better than black people or better than this group or better than the other group. And so that's been so pervasive in our history. And so I think this dangerousness goes along with that. It gives people an excuse. And I think that's really what it's coming from. It's saying, okay, the reason why we should be in charge is because these folks are dangerous and we can't trust these folks to do this thing. Once again, going back to the paternalism that goes along with it. So I think it's knowledge, but I think it's also this maintaining of white supremacy. You need an excuse for that because if you don't have an excuse, if you think that other folks of color are autonomous, autonomous, intelligent, capable of being in society, then you're going to have to explain all the things that you've done. You no longer have a justification for what you're doing. And also, I just want to point out the exception, the way we think about exceptions, right? Because I think you brought up all these, we have these examples of people of color, black people doing the right thing. They are often viewed as the exception to the rule. But one thing you'll notice is that for folks that are racialized as white, when they do wrong, they're viewed as the exception. So so if you think about like white people might say, oh, well, Dylan Roof is the exception to the case. But for us, for black people in particular, the people, black people who do good are called the exception. So it's right. that nuance about how people treat it, which is done. And that's how we ruin the world. So and that's the way you get around it. You basically say, oh, well, I saw this 
intelligent black man. I saw this rich book. I saw all these good qualities. That person's the exception to the rule in anything that goes wrong. So even if you see the narrative of what's happening January 6th, people keep saying, this is not who we are. This is not us because they're saying that they are the exception. But when black people do wrong, when they are criminalized, they say, oh, well, black people do this. Black people do drugs. Black people are dangerous. We never get to be the exception. Only we are the exception only when we do good, not when we do bad. And it's vice versa for those who are white. That's really great. I really love that. Marcellus Braxton, we want to thank you so much. And thank you so much for this powerful op-ed that you did um, and sharing it with us and your voice and also giving us more insight into what you're thinking, but also more insight into, you know, black and white issues. And everyone who's listening um, can definitely um, check out Marcellus Braxton's op-ed piece on thedispatch.com as well as listen to this op-ed. And thank you, Scott, again, for an amazing, amazing job with this podcast. I really like your brilliancy. I appreciate you. you. My pleasure. (laughs) <laughs> well, thank you so much, and thank for all you. Th- I'm thankful for all you did. Thank you, Marcellus. And as Terrence said, for everybody else out there, don't forget to check out Marcellus's column in the paper and on Dispatch.com. And don't forget to check back for our next installment of In Black and White. And for everybody else out there, try to see things from the other side. Thanks. Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts.